0: It's not quite as stark an image as this kind of like um, Manichaean, you know, good versus evil struggle that is kind of becoming Washington at least. Right. I think that Russia is starting to run out of runway to, to rely on the model that it has. And it really has to start considering what its other options are or how it can kind of maintain its competitiveness based on how it's running its business. It's, it's not like Europe would suddenly be screwed if if we were to lose transit via Ukraine, let's say, or, or you know, or, or in this kind of scenario, like like, like Europe has options. The, re, the real issue is Ukraine because it gets billions of dollars in
1: transit fees. Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy, the podcast where I talk to interesting and influential figures in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. I'm your host. Kevin Rothrock And on this show I interview people About trending news stories The overarching themes Of Russia watching And the ins and outs Of life as a professional In this field The show is supported By listeners like you At patreon.com Backslash Kevin Rothrock Where you can contribute As much or as little Of your hard-earned money As you like Thank you very much To my active patrons There are currently 22 of you This is great It's awesome And it really helps me out Thanks very much
0: Nord Stream is definitely about Ukraine. The actual original project, the, the first branch was built out, you know, or a planty built out back in around the like go 506, like during the kind of first gas war and obviously, people don't really like admitting that Ukraine was stealing gas at the time. So, I mean, like it, it doesn't mean that it's fair necessarily to Ukraine, uh, You that know, also geopolitics isn't ever really fair.
1: That's Nick Trickett, the editor-in-chief of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's BMB Russia newsletter, a frequent contributor to The Diplomat and a current Master of Science candidate for a degree in international political economy at the London School of Economics. Nick studies energy politics and markets with a special interest in oil and gas. If you haven't signed up for BMB Russia, by the way, you're missing out. They have great content, it's smart stuff, and I highly recommend it. Last week, The Hill published an article advocating U.S. sanctions against Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I've never understood the push for these sanctions, outside Ukraine, of course, where the loss of transit fees would obviously be costly. But why should Western Europe and the United States, I've never understood, mobilize against the Russian pipeline. When I shared my frustration on Twitter last week about this article and the whole sanctions initiative, Nick responded, I'm so tired with the Nord Stream 2 back and forth. It's almost never productive, always entails threat inflation, and rarely owns that Ukraine is the real issue, with EU energy security basically not being at serious risk, particularly with long-term renewables investments. In a follow-up tweet, he said, Gazprom literally folded on pricing such that the market determines it now, without all interconnections even completed. It was a coup, yet these people keep hammering away despite the loads of underutilized LNG capacity or fact that the EU already absorbs LNG volumes. He then agreed to come on today's show to explain what the hell he meant. Now here's the interview.
0: There's not really like a law that says that Gazprom is legally obligated to use them as a transit state. It was also in Russia's interest though back in the mid-2000s because Germany... You know, is the kind of industrial driver of the EU. So essentially, guaranteeing you know, relatively cheap gas for European, European industry, but really German industry, is really useful politically because German, Germany's exports, in particular industrial exports, basically cover most of the kind of import deficit of the, of the Eurozone. So, like, Germany is actually like a kind of key component of what allows other states to not really be exporting much. And so for Russia and Gazprom specifically, it was really valuable to kind of try to build up that relationship and get preferential access. And in this case, sidestep Ukraine because at the time, at least, they were stealing gas. And also, you know, it was, it was just politically more convenient and more useful for them. TurkStream is not really... About Ukraine as much, even though it impacts Ukraine. Turkstream was more part of a longer process of Russia and the U.S. actually, and, and Brussels going back and forth over attempts to get natural gas from Turkmenistan and then also Azerbaijan, which, which is coming to Europe. And so Russia was basically trying to head off natural gas coming from Central Asia to European markets by building a southern kind of route because they have so much natural gas reserves that they can they can relatively cheaply export it now. More recently, uh, Azerbaijan and the kind of so-called Southern Gas Corridor have actually been kind of built or under construction. It's not final, quite finalized yet, but, but Russia wasn't able to stop that from happening. Um, so Brussels was able to kind of get another player, in this case Azerbaijan, to be an exporter, which d- doesn't actually do a whole lot to diversify supplies in terms of percentages. Like if you look at the amount that Russia exports relative to what Azerbaijan probably can, um, I think last year... The total export figure for Gazprom for both Western Europe and kind of southern and eastern Europe, which includes Turkey, was about 200 bcm or billion cubic meters, which is a lot. And I think that Azerbaijan's capacity, like as the company, is probably somewhere around 30 bcm if they actually reach their targets by like the mid 2020s. So it's so the, the point being that like on that side, those, the pipelines kind of had. More long-running, deep-seated geopolitical interests behind them, but they're not just Ukraine. Even though obviously Ukraine kind of became a victim and a captive because of the crisis in 2014. What's also missing from the discussion usually is that Europe has a massive amount of LNG capacity or liquefied natural gas capacity that it doesn't use. I think that right now, or at least as of 2017, the overall capacity in terms of like import, I guess plants, you can call them like LNG facilities that they they had would cover about 40% of their gas needs. So. It's it's not like Europe would suddenly be screwed if if we were to lose transit via Ukraine, let's say, or, or you know, or, or in this kind of scenario, like 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 Europe has options. The re, the real issue is Ukraine because it gets billions of dollars in transit fees, and and obviously now, especially because its budget situation is not really totally stable, and and you know, growth is a, a priority, etc. Losing those transit fees is a big deal. If you look at I want to say Oxford Energy. I'm forgetting the exact name of the Energy Institute. Oxford Energy basically had like a good report about how even in the relatively optimistic scenarios for Russia kind of finishing these competing pipelines with TurkStream and Nord Stream 2, you would contractually probably still have to have gas going through Ukraine. And and also gas demand fluctuates seasonally. So like during the kind of peak season, you probably still see Ukrainian capacity used. So it's not like It's not quite as stark an image as this kind of, like, um, Manichean, you know, good versus evil struggle that is kind of become in Washington, at least, where like, freedom gas became the kind of buzzword and one of the stupidest, like, PR attempts I've ever seen for a policy. What
1: is freedom gas?
0: It's basically the, the Department of Energy tried to pitch U.S. LNG exports to Europe under the guise of freedom gas and the idea that, like, they don't come with strings attached. There's no corrosive influence, you know, et cetera. Wait,
1: what are the strings attached with Russian gas?
0: It, it's implicit. No, they, they don't really do a good job of explaining it. Normally, what they're referring to is um, essentially corruption costs. So the fact that Russian companies are, you know, are do actively try to buy off politicians and so on and in influence. Also, historically, Gazprom, because Gazprom dominates so many specific markets that don't have access to other competitors in Europe, historically they were able to set prices. The problem with that argument now for the U.S. is that actually last year, in order to drop the kind of – anti or in the last year, to drop the antitrust case that, that the European Commission brought against Gazprom, they've agreed to not set prices anymore. So like as a kind of useful background to, um, background kind of contractual thing regarding how it's traded, natural gas by pipelines historically, its prices were kind of pegged to oil in a contract. It, it might be like a six, six or, no, or nine month kind of lag time or in, in index where – at a certain kind of percentage or rate compared to oil prices is what you're paying for your natural gas, and Russia would obviously also manipulate the kind of contracts for places like Estonia because they couldn't get it from anywhere else, and that's that's over now. So that 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 practice has basically been ended, and on top of that, the EU members are actively building up capacity and kind of pipelines linking different markets together so that they can ship gas around, and, and Gazprom was forced to basically swallow. It's pride and let European consumers re-export the gas if they buy it from them. So for example, like in this case, I don't think Poland would, but like, but like, let's say Poland bought gas from Russia and wants to resell it to Ukraine so that that way Ukraine's still getting Russian gas, but not like via Russia directly, it can legally do that and Gazprom can't stop it.
1: Wouldn't it be more expensive though?
0: Um, marginally, but it's not, the thing is that the, it's, 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 it's still not there yet, but the more the market integrates... The, the relatively cheaper it is in terms of the marginal cost because you have more and more kind of competitors and sources affecting the price. So that the price becomes a reflection of what are called spot markets or the markets where gas is being traded daily as opposed to like long-term contracts where you're, you're paying a kind of fixed rate.
1: And so there's a scenario where Ukraine would be – cut out of gas but then they could still buy it from european states that are getting it from russia russia refused to sell to ukraine for political reasons
0: yeah like ukraine's not going to lose access to gas the issue is not even not really that the issue is more just the transit fees so it's really it's really about having a couple billion dollars a year i think it's paid in dollars but i have to check the actual rules of the the way it's collected to, to shore up your budget you know so it, it's really much more a domestic kind of budgetary issue for ukraine and and our, and our people can argue i don't necessarily agree with it but you could argue that actually having that money coming in that's not a result of any actual kind of generative Economic activity is politically negative for the country because it kind of pre- it presents this permanent source of rents that the kind of political class fights over because obviously it's a lot of money and, and it's and also gas prices are so politically sensitive that it's a, a permanent kind of pressure point politically.
1: Well, and your, Europeans are paying the the fees too, right? Because this is ultimately paid for by the consumers in Europe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, though I, I think that the the actual effect they have on like the end price is relatively small. Another thing to think about that people haven't really, I think talked about enough with the with the kind of the NS2 story is that now that China's about to finally be importing natural gas from Russia via the power of Siberia pipeline, Gazprom actually has to deal with more with, with the fact that its, its consumers have more kind of negotiating leverage. Because um, back in 2014, when the major supply deal was was kind of negotiated between Moscow and Beijing, Gazprom was basically trying to get China to, to pay European prices. And, and China had, had, you know, in the last five years, signed deals with Turkmenistan that according to the best reports we have or that I've seen because no one really knows what the documents look like, were probably about half the level of European prices. So now, ironically, Gazprom was trying to build this pipeline, not just to make its own contractors rich, but obviously to sell to China and theoretically going to gain leverage in Europe because back in the 2000s, it was a talking point about Russia having options. But now, it's a buyer's market, and so what they've actually done is effectively given both Europe and China more leeway to screw them in negotiations over prices. Because whenever prices drop for either one, you know the other one can say, "Hey, they're, you know, they're paying less than us." And 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 in China, like China, is um, definitely expanding a lot with its kind of like liquefied natural gas capacity, which is the kind of dominant, historically dominant natural gas trade in in East Asia. And liquefied natural gas, unlike pipeline gas, historically is, um, is not quite as rigidly traded in terms of the contracts because you can ship it around by boat. So basically, the big picture of what I'm describing is that the mark- markets globally are starting to integrate to a higher degree. And that really undermines gas Gazprom's negotiating leverage over things like price. Because like, the thing is that – like the story that you're describing when it comes to ns2 it, you know is about energy security when you when you hear it on the news it, it the issue is people don't really define what energy security means very carefully it tends to mean having diversity of options for where you buy but it's i think really historically it's what's more, most important is basically having access to a thing and then having having not to pay too much for it right so the diversity of options is historically is about bringing prices down as much as it is like not, you know, risking a, an interruption of supply or something. But now, especially because LNG is kind of taken off more in the market globally, it's less about an inter- interruption of supply because finally these markets that historically were very regional or even national, because the pipelines were limited to where they could go, are starting to be affected by more and more of these kind of relatively global market forces in terms of demand. So the whole freedom gas narrative in DC is not really reflective of what's what Europe is really facing and, and an even more perverse irony is that China in a trade war actually slapped tariffs on US LNG supplies and effectively that meant that European consumers had a price advantage buying US LNG. So so Europe European imports of US LNG the first half of this year rose. So it's it's not really like 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 blocking NST is not going to change any, any of these dynamics. The real issue is Ukraine, And the West has other means by which it can it can help Ukraine financially or help Ukraine reform. So it's a very specific kind of cudgel. And it's also what's weird about it, too, if you want to think about it in a more American kind of political context, it's really like a redux of the early 80s under Reagan. When the Soviets first tried to sell natural gas to Western Europe by pipeline, the Reagan administration tried to sanction the project and basically stop it from happening. And the Europeans won. They got the gas. So it's there's like a long running history of the U.S. basically freaking out about Europe buying from Russia or, or from someone else, and then you know raising a political stink about it and trying to get in there, and and like guarantee their energy security. And so it's not it's like in, in an administration filled with Reagan era hawks, etc. It's it's funny that this kind of meme took off after the election too.
1: And so is this is the opposition to. Nord Stream Two, for example, is that really American-led, or is there a is there a grassroots movement in Europe that's also opposed to it?
0: I mean, Eastern European countries in, in Europe hate it. I mean, Poland definitely hates it, and Poland tried to, to essentially slow roll it by by denying them, like you know, permitting to build it. You know, the Baltics obviously aren't fans of it, even though it doesn't really affect them that much. But I, I would say that it's mostly it's mostly in DC, and in DC kind of exploiting the Eastern members of the EU that have long-running historical animosity with Moscow for understandable reasons or historically have had a a kind of contentious energy relationship with Russia and and only in recent years have kind of come to diversify away from Russia.
1: What is the the justification offered, say, by American hawks? Because there was this—the reason we even got talking about this yesterday was there was this piece in The Hill, I think, that was arguing— essentially that it was presented as an argument in favor of sanctions against this project, but really it was just an explanation of why sanctions wouldn't be, as I read it, it, why they wouldn't be that— Bad, they wouldn't backfire that much, or the way critics say. But it wasn't actually a justification for the sanctions themselves. It was there was no explanation for why this pipeline is bad. Why do people say it's bad outside Ukraine? And, and if they don't invoke Ukraine when they're talking about it, what's the what's the argument exactly?
0: The usual argument is that it increases Europe's dependence on Russian
1: gas. But you're saying that's not true.
0: Well, it's it's like it has a, like a grain of truth to it, but it's not really totally fair because. Europe will still be buying the same amount of gas, but just by a different by a different pipeline. So it doesn't really change the structural dependence on Russian imports. All it really does is is give Russia more capacity to export in the future, which arguably, yes, that, that that could increase Russia's... I mean, it's expected to increase Russia's relative share of the kind of EU's natural gas imports, but that's also because production is expected to decline elsewhere, like in Norway. But it doesn't really pose a systemic risk to them, especially if there's more and more gas on the market that is traded globally that they can import. So it's... It's not like a a clear a clear cut justification. It's definitely like like a legitimate concern because obviously when you have capacity, you can then use it, you know, and so it and also like it, they'll clearly want to try to shut off the Ukrainian route so that Ukraine doesn't collect any fees. But in terms of the EU's actual dependence, it's not really structurally a huge problem, particularly now that renewables are increasingly competitive with oil and gas. so um like like next year, I think I'm forgetting which research like research house said this, but basically next year is the first year where they expect that renewables are going to compete generally on a price basis with other more traditional power sources. So it's, it's becoming less and less relevant. I mean, there are obviously some industries that are still going to need gas. Like that, that, that The reason why Germany matters so much is because they export industrial parts. So obviously natural gas is useful. But I think that the overall argument that Europe's going to become more dependent is not really addressing the fact that that would be true even if they didn't build NS2. Like, just structurally speaking, also, Russia's exporting more LNG and and investing more in LNG. And the irony is that, like, you know, Europe might be buying, might end up buying more Russian LNG. But the fact that Russia's exporting it and the fact that a company that's not Gazprom is actually the one, you know, exporting it means that Gazprom is facing more domestic pressure to not set prices abroad. The whole, like, argument around that kind of falls apart once you control prices, I think, is is the general point that I would make. And Europe's done a very good job of doing that overall. So, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't think it's a very compelling. Argument.
1: Is it even possible to roll back these projects now, or is that is it? Are they too far along? Yeah,
0: I, I think it's too far along. I mean, even last, I think it was April or May when I was talking to some people on the kind of think tank space who had industry backgrounds. They basically would all, at least privately, acknowledge that there was no way the U.S. could effectively sanction it, yeah, you know, or or minimum that the sanctions would not be that effective in doing so.
1: So, in that sense, this is completely a redux of the '80s, where the United States and you know Eastern Europe wasn't independent at the time, really, but uh, that the, the critics of Russian gas expansion tried to stop it. Europe won. And you you expect the same thing to happen again this time around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to get built. And, 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 I mean, Gazprom is actually banking on Denmark, for example, finalizing the route through its territorial waters, I think, in October. And that, that's obviously been drawn out because all, all the countries on the Baltic have reason to slow down the process. And they can do that legally, but they can't really block it because it's it's not really clear what regulations the EU has at its, at its, in its kind of arsenal of legislation are actually being violated. you know. And, and also part of the problem that they, the EU faces is that they try to kind of construct a regime of rules about the pipelines that are built into EU member states to, to kind of help you know improve competition and so on. So stuff like guaranteeing basically that if you build a pipeline, once it enters EU territory, you have to let other market participants use it. So you can't monopolize it. The problem is that They've had a fairly loose relationship with a lot of these regulations when it came to SOCAR and Azerbaijan. So it, they've already kind of got this hypocritical like, you know, geopolitical position of clearly politicizing the regulations they have at their disposal. And, and that doesn't look good when it comes to having a rules-based approach.
1: Where do you expect the situation with Europe's energy market relative to Russia? Where do you expect that to be in like 10 years?
0: The same. I think that Russia's going to have a larger market share in terms of gas, at least, imports. I think oil is a different story. Because kind of, Russian companies are trying to redirect more and more oil towards China specifically, but the Asia-Pacific. But it really depends a lot on how deeply renewables takes root, how effective transitions away from nuclear power, which is kind of an open question because it's clearly effective even though it has high risks, are going to be in places like France or Germany. And also, honestly, the thing that no one's talking about really is what happens after the next global recession because we are about to head into one. No one really knows the exact date. I'm incredibly pessimistic, so I'm assuming it's like late this year, just because I think that there are, there are a lot of political things happening at once that can kind of suddenly spook investors, and, and, and before you know what, it's happening. But the problem is that like Europe really hasn't grown that much since 08. Oh I mean, it's grown. The eurozone's grown, but it's, it's grown at about half the rate of the U.S. in, in GDP terms. And demographically, you know, politically, it's not really clear where the next wave of growth comes from. So in that sense, Europe is not really like an active market From not all, but for, for like major fuel exporters. It's not really where the, where the money is. I mean, the money is in places like India or China, but even there, it's slowing down too, because in a place like China, they're trying to push out electric vehicles as fast as they can. So it's it's a very strange moment. You know, I think most of the oil companies are too bullish on how long they have till demand peaks. And that obviously will also, you know, relate to natural gas I think that like Vital is one of the world's biggest traders. They're actually banking on 2028 as kind of peak oil demand. No one really knows. The market's in, kind of insane right now. But I think that Russia is starting to run out of runway to, to rely on the model that it has. And it really has to start considering what its other options are or how it can kind of maintain its competitiveness based on how it's running its business.
1: Generally speaking, what are its other options?
0: <laughs> Who knows? It's uh, a good question. In terms of development, I mean, the, the, the biggest issues in Russia tend to be institutional and things like human capital, right? So... You have this ongoing fight where nobody in Moscow who's around the central bank or or like Minfin wants to spend any money that they're saving because they're just incredibly traditional conservative, you know, budget hawks and like, and very worried about inflation, et cetera. It's not clear how long that can last because especially if you have relatively inefficient allocations of state money for research and development, things like that, and you're not really doing a lot to improve the innovation going on in your economy and you're not really you're basically not doing a good job of replacing things you used to import that are difficult to get now, either because of sanctions or you you're, you're just have less spending power. It's not really clear how much longer you can rely on, on the kind of oil and gas driven model. I don't think oil and gas is the only thing in the economy at all, even, but historically Russian business cycles tend to correlate to the oil market. And especially now with sanctions and the lack of kind of local development for major technology, it's getting more and more expensive to, to extract oil, oil specifically in Russia, which is the main moneymaker. And they're not really replacing the gear that they're importing at a fast enough clip. So I mean, even even like um, I think ExxonMobil just complained basically about not being able to use ships that are registered in foreign countries to service projects on the Russian continental shelf because of a law passed last year that was part of a stupid ad hoc localization initiative. It's like things like that are just getting in the way of companies doing business. And like and, and the thing is that there's there's been a definitive shift from import substitution towards localization, which basically means. You kind of partner up with a foreign company to make their product in, in Russia as opposed to trying to replace it entirely yourself. But it's not really clearly successful yet, and the contracts for it suck, honestly. So I don't think that it's like a catastrophe. Obviously, stagnation is kind of the general approach people have to describing it. But I think that the, the oil part of the kind of Russian political economy uh, that it's maintained of development so far is starting to, to wobble finally just because of structural problems they created by their own, their own policies and also the, the market at large. The idea that transatlantic partners are always united on energy stuff is, is, also, is obviously a myth. What's funny about what's going on now is that Europe has basically always had a contentious relationship with the U.S. when it came to oil and gas. So as kind of like you know, general, general context, after World War II, world market oil prices were largely set by, what, by Anglo-American companies in the Middle East that effectively would cut deals with you know, the kind of local Gulf monarchies, you know, the governments and you know effectively peg the price and kind of you know share the profits accordingly and this really pissed off the italians so the italian company eni oil company that funny enough was actually working in the sinai peninsula before the suez crisis broke out and israel actually stole all of its gear when it invaded egypt they actually reached out to the soviets and tried to cut deals where the soviets would essentially once once the soviets started exporting oil the soviets would discount their oil so the soviets tried to undermine US and British and and also Gulf power to set oil prices by you know, discounting their own exports. And so like, that's not like a new dynamic that's still going on today. And and so I think it's just funny that people have kind of forgotten how contentious the relationship is. And and so it's, it's like, to me, I think it speaks more to this very reactionary hawkishness in DC that it's not like wrong to want to do something in response to like the 2016 election. I mean, I get it. But this isn't really an answer, especially when the priority should be just making things cheaper for Europe because the, the, the cheaper it is and the, and the more options they have, meaning both the US and Russia, the more leverage you actually have because Russia can't really set prices then. So it's, it's a kind of backwards approach to the problem where I, the irony is that the U.S. could actually increase its relative leverage if it was simply a little bit smarter about how it messaged these things and how it approached them. A
1: smarter policy for the U.S. would be what exactly? Like, what would it do?
0: Not threatening to sanction a project that, like, a key partner really, really wants. And instead just saying, hey, like, we, we get that you need this, but we, we, we want you to, like, build a couple LNG plants, you know, et cetera. Like, you, you can do that quietly. You know, it's not – you don't have to be loud about for it. For
1: domestic production, you mean? Because you, you said before that Europe has its own deposits.
0: Yeah, it ha- well, it, not deposits. It, ha- it has capacity to import it. I, I mean, see. it has some some domestically, but, it, but the real thing is they basically built a bunch of terminals to import. It. And the US has has a lot of gas; it can export things like that. You know, so it, it's it's not that that terrible. And
1: the US, I don't know the geography very well of the LNG deposits, but the US has lots, and Europe doesn't. Is that fair to say? Or so
0: basically, US so. U.S. production tends to be exported out through the Gulf, so the main like hub in the U.S. to set prices is, is is the Henry Hub, which is in the Gulf. In the case of Europe, they have they had natural gas in the Netherlands, but that's running out, and, and they still have a lot in, in the North Sea, in Norway, but it's it's again running out. Like the, the fields in the North Sea are declining, so it's just like a a structural reality that Europe's going to have to import more from a non-kind of European, you know, friendly member. So it's going to import more Russian gas, sure, but it's also going to have to import more U.S. gas at some point too. It's like it's kind of it's kind of inevitable, and they'll, they'll be getting some from Azerbaijan, and it's going to have an impact, though not a huge one, because most of the markets buying it are small. But it's a classic case, basically, of the U.S. trying to exploit the idea of the transatlantic partnership without really thinking through what would actually be more useful strate- strategically to pursue in terms of how it can kind of message and position itself.
1: That's my interview with Nick Trickett, the editor-in-chief of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's BMB Russian newsletter, a frequent contributor to The Diplomat, and a current Master of Science candidate for a degree in international political economy at the London School of Economics. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider skipping over to patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can make a contribution. Thanks to everybody already pitching in. And by the way, I'm always happy to get feedback on Twitter if ever you have a comment or question about the show. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.
0: Говорят мы пяки буки,
1: как выносит на земля. Дай, что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля.